this episode of China Unscripted, the Chinese Communist Party is sowing social chaos in America and around the world. It's called entropic warfare, and here's how you can fight back. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chong. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Joining us once again is Cleo, a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy. Now, somebody has to do it. Democracies? There's more, more than, than one? one. Yeah. Democracy. What? Just, they keep coming out yeah, with new ones. Yeah, you can't ones. Uh, keep track of all the democracies. I, I, does, I does it include uh, China's democracy? Because that's China has the best democracy. It's a special democracy. Yeah, right. it's... Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's not as chaotic as our democracy. It's no, very stable. None of that stupid voting stuff. Yeah. Oh, there's voting on the local level that's completely representative of China's shift towards democracy. I've yeah. been bought off. No, there you go. <laughs> yeah. well, it's, it's that old one man, one vote, and that one man is she, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's all you need. <laughs> one vote. Uh, well, today we wanted to talk about entropic warfare. China's in tropic warfare. So why is China waging war in the tropics? Yeah, so <laughs> I have gotten this many times. I have to figure out how to <clears throat> explain this uh, better. Um, so entropy, right? The state mm -hmm. of entropy is when something slowly falls apart, disintegrates, enters a state of chaos. And that seems to be what China tries to do in countries where it hasn't had effective elite capture. So the goal, first of all, would be elite capture. Then you don't have to. Then your elite, your proxy elite, manage the population on your behalf. It's That's a lot easier. So that would be, you know, buy off somebody um, like, uh, I wouldn't use any examples from this continent for fear uh, of concern. Hansen, Sen, Cambodia. Yeah, okay, fine. You know, and then they do your dirty work for you. Okay, that would be ideal. If that doesn't work and there's some resistance, and it's a functioning democracy, what you can do is try to uh, create chaos, dissension, division within the society so that it weakens. And you can come in in a much more focused way, um, usually identify groupings within that now disintegrating society that you can back and that can take control and you can then have your effective elite capture to ride roughshod over the rest of the population. So this state of entropy you're talking about, is this one of those democracies? That, so yeah. So, yeah, there you go. Is, I mean, the goal, what is the ultimate goal of the Chinese Communist Party, right, uh, in, in international affairs? And we've talked about this before. It's to be number one in terms of comprehensive national power. So the China, in comparison to other countries, has uh, more strength. But it's also to create effective vassal states, Right, and uh, we can see how quickly that can happen in a place like the Solomon Islands. So, in 2019, Solomon's was uh, in a very f perfectly fine operating relationship with Taiwan, and it wasn't completely stable, but it was pretty stable. Then it switched to China, and you started to see all of these unrestricted warfare tactics come into play that, to create a state of entropy. They uh, bought off 39 out of the 50 members of parliament. And we have the list of names of who got money directly from the Chinese slush fund. And that was enough members of parliament, plus one or two, in order to be able to change the constitution and postpone elections, which they've now done. They also created um, so much dissension with the other province, Malaita, which didn't want to switch to China, wanted to stay with Taiwan, 
that it started to reignite uh, the sort of sentiments that had previously led to a civil war. And there was so much dissatisfaction with this uh, Chinese coming in hard and mean, uh, including illegal logging and all sorts of other activities, that you got the riots um, in, the, in the capital that were then, it seems like, directed towards Chinatown and the Chinatown in the capital of Solomon Islands was, uh, was burnt down. So this, that first phase happened very quickly in about a year, year and a half. And that created the justification ultimately to sign a security deal between Prime Minister Sogavari, who is that Chinese proxy, and the Chinese state, uh, which would allow the deployment of Chinese forces to come into the Solomons to protect Chinese investments and Chinese citizens. Things that weren't at threat when the relationship was with Taiwan, but they created such destabilization that they could justify the insertion of troops in order to protect uh, Chinese citizens and Chinese investments. So basically the CCP was happy that Chinatown was burned because that just gave them an excuse to send in the troops. Yeah. I mean, so... Well, technically, they haven't sent in the troops. Well, but they've done a lot of police training and they've sent in a lot of weaponry. And, um, and the logic is there to be accepted by the West. This is a responsibility to protect type of situation, right? So um, there, some people in the Solomon say, first of all, the riot was triggered. So they're mostly peaceful protests and then the police fired tear gas into the protesters and then there was um, looting, obviously. Uh, but this kind of kettling or moving the population that was riding towards the Chinatown uh, may may have been um, part of not accidental, and, and we and Chinatown wasn't defended. We know that for sure. Um, and the population very quickly within the next two or three days came out on the streets to clean up Chinatown in the city and to return. And, you know, angry mothers getting their teenage kids to return what they looted and things like it was trying to it was trying to self correct. But what happened was um, Sogavari asked the Australians to intervene. Right, but the Prime Minister Sogavari. Prime Minister Sogavari, who's a Chinese proxy, asked the Australians to intervene. And the Australians sent in troops. And uh, so Sogavari could turn to the members of parliament and say, I've got China on my side and I have Australia on my side. Do you really want to try to get rid of me now? And then once the Australians had sent in the troops, the Chinese had a justification to send in their own troops because they, there were already foreign troops on the ground. Okay? So using the Australian cover to increase uh, the Chinese presence was a really nice move, very clever move. And I, don't, I honestly don't think it was accidental. I think that the Australians were really played. Well, so now that Australia has sent, what is it, semi-automatic weapons to the Solomon Islands... Is that just an excuse for Chinese semi-automatic weapons to come well, into? Well, they sent in, uh, after they uh, after Australia did that, China sent some water cannon trucks and other, nice. like, riot police type of vehicles in. So th this is all really recent, okay? So um, the the excuse for moving the election that, or postponing the election was... Uh, the, Sol the Solomon Islands is supposed to host the Pacific Games in 2023, which is a regional, like a regional Olympics. And Sogavari said, we don't have money for the games and for the elections that we are supposed to legally hold in 2023. So we're going to hold the games and we'll hold the elections at some other point. And then Australia stepped in and said, 
okay, don't worry about it. We'll help you fund the games. <laughs> and, then, and then the international community went, what the hell are you doing, Australia? They, well, the they, clear, and they said it quietly like that. Well, the clear solution is then just China can fund the election. So then after the international community said what it said, then Australia said, okay, maybe we'll f help fund the election. But by then it was too late. Right? They'd already they, postponed it? They, they'd already postponed it. Then um, Australia um, sent in, as you mentioned, very recently, 60 semi-automatic weapons and a dozen vehicles, right? And the opposition came out and said, who do you think they're going to use these guns against? I mean, it's not like Papua New Guinea is about to attack Solomon Islands. Like this, this is like a small tropical island nation that's like, yeah, like they, they don't need like riot gear. Well, I mean, semiotic weapons are a little beyond riot gear. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, and there's no, the only people the government could be using it against is their own people, right? And there was a civil war that ended a little over 20 years ago. And one of the things that fueled that civil war was the militants raiding the armory of the police and getting weapons to use against the state. And then there was a big process at the end of the civil war of getting all those weapons back and destroying them. And now you're doing it again. And then exactly as you said, almost a day or two later, uh, the China announced this lovely gift of water cannons. So imagine you're a pro-democracy person in Solomons. Imagine you would like to stick with Taiwan. You're very concerned about the direction your government is going in. It's gotten rid of the elections. Um, it's clearly bought off huge sections of the, of the government. And all of these weapons and training are being poured in to Prime Minister Sogavari's regime. How scared are you? And I think, like, from what we saw in... I mean, this is reminding me of Hong Kong a lot because uh, of the escalation of, like, riot police and tear gas and water can this kind of thing where the more escalated the police came, like, it was almost like they were trying to push the protesters toward more violence, and then you have this continuing escalation from both sides. Yeah, and remember, this all happened since September 2019. This... this creation of this state of disintegration and ca internal chaos and, and potential for violence. And I mean, we can talk about the Australian piece of it, but the trajectory it's on now, it, 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 it has the potential to trigger another civil war. And if that happens, then Sogavari knows he has China's backing. And that's why things like what happened with, with what she did to Hu Jintao, a guy like Sugavari looks at that with envy. You know, he wishes he could take out the prime minister of Malaita and drag him off a stage and have him disappear in the same way she did. This is it's not unattractive to potential dictators. So understanding, you know, how that messaging can, can whether that was an intended consequence or not, understanding how the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party can be attractive to people who have that kind of mindset and so want to create a civil war situation so they have an excuse not just to postpone elections but to never have another election. Mm -hmm. mm. I guess in a lot of ways this is kind of like communism 101 that they, uh, you know, Marx talked about the forcible overthrow of all pre-existing social yep. conditions. You go into society, you break down the pillars that support it and in the ensuing chaos, 
you take over. That's how the Chinese Communist Party took over China. That's how the Soviets took over Russia. Yeah. And that's how I plan to take over the show. Uh, and You're going to so, make Matt and I fight with each other? Oh, you guys already got that taken care of. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so then... You bring, in, you bring in some foreign influence. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah. Thanks like, for the like, semi-automatic like, like, guns, yeah. by the way. You, yeah, you, you are a foreigner. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Shh, shh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think everyone can tell by the accents. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, but yeah, so the Chinese Communist Party is just using these same communist tactics just in other countries that also want to become authoritarian dictatorships. But have you considered that maybe Prime Minister So Guevara, you know, I know you think of him as a dictator, but isn't he the hero of his own story? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like Stalin was the hero of his own story and all, you know, I remember, right. yeah, yeah. I think, and I think that's actually part of it is control of the media so that you can be the hero of the story. So if you can, and, and you get a lot of, um, uh, that that's part of this creation of a state of entropy. So when Wang Yi went through the Pacific Islands, mm -hmm. people like Sogavari uh, limited what their what their own country's press could report and what access they could have. And so the, that security deal that was signed, uh, we only know what was in it because a draft of it was leaked. So control over narrative actually is an, is an incredibly important component of it. And if the the journalists object to it, that just contributes to the state of entropy, to this to this sense of division within the society. So if your goal is to create chaos, all of this is just fine. You know, people getting killed, unions being angry, whatever, it's, it's what you're talking about in terms of uh, just whatever will work to create fractions, divisions, uh, and just destruction of what was there before. So the Chinese Communist Party must be somehow like analyzing these fault lines in societies all over the world, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we know that. I mean, and we know th that um, here. I mean, that's that's why TikTok is such a problem. That's why the sort of the the use of uh, mass customized manipulation to create division within other societies is a, is standard operating procedure for Chinese influence operations. I mean, you've had Kerry Gershanik on the show. He wrote a very good book about that, a political warfare. We saw it happen in Taiwan. We saw it happen in Thailand. It's, it's just basic. You know, if, you're, if your target is strong and you want to weaken them, you, doing it from the inside is by far the most effective way of doing it. Well, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't need to target America because we are perfectly capable of creating our own chaos. Thank you very much. So I, I would argue that Obviously, there are divisions in the U.S. and uh, there are problems. But what they've been very good at doing, something we've talked about, which is that they'll find a real problem, but they'll give you the wrong solution. Mm -hmm. So they'll you'll say, for example, okay, are they, yeah, there if there are problems with, uh, you know, I don't know, ice cream is being served too cold, so the answer is to, you know, burn down the creamery. You know, like the, the, the end point is always something that serves their purpose, even though the starting point may be legitimate. Right. So, so it is a solution. Yeah, it's a solution. Your, your ice cream will definitely end up more warm if you burn down the creamery. Well, and also anyone who resists the idea of burning down the creameries is therefore also an oppressor who's trying to hurt people by subjecting them to really cold ice cream. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, yeah. So in the and also there's less food, which makes it very Marxist. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and and ice cream so bourgeois anyway. You wouldn't want to serve. Yeah, but, but this idea of uh, 
of weakening from the inside, creating fraction, factions, divisions, chaos. Like you said, it's, I mean, it's been there since the late 19th century. So I'm not sure we shouldn't be surprised. Um, and there is a counter to it. I mean, this, this is the thing. If you look at a situation like the Solomon Islands, they, they went through a period of chaos uh, with the Civil War, and then they signed a peace deal. And it was very difficult. It's very difficult to sign a peace deal. You know, you have to agree that the pain that, that you inflicted and the, and the pain, suffering that you went through will be forgotten or will be overcome for a greater good. So that's very hard to do when you've had family members who are killed or when you've done terrible things or whatever, you know. But they did it. They, and they signed the Townsville Peace Agreement about 20 years ago. And the solution was devolution of power um, in part. And then uh, the Australians came in on a peacekeeping mission. They led a peacekeeping mission. And they, they, when you come in with a peacekeeping mission, it's more convenient to have centralized power right, to have to just deal with the capital and then they deal with it. So that devolution never really happened. And um, the result now is when Australia pulled out of that centralized peacekeeping mission, China had a centralized system where they could walk right into. I'm beginning to think Australia is the bad guy here. So I, I mean, there are a bunch of criminals. Yeah, well, Australia is, it, Australia really stood up to China in a lot of, in a lot of important ways. Uh, you know, they took the economic hits around calling for the or origins of COVID uh, investigation. Um, they're they're very they have very good people in defense. Um, I don't I I don't know who is making these decisions. Mm. So it's not Australia as a whole, but whoever is making these decisions is epically stupid about like, the Solomon specifically. Well, it's not just it's also uh, Papua New Guinea. It's also a, a lot of the Pacific Islands. Yeah. So let's talk but about... But it may not just be stupidity. There may be something else going on. Yeah. What do you mean by that? There, so there may be the uh, relationship with between uh, Australia and the region was colonial. So Australia was the colonial power in Papua New Guinea, for example, until 1975, until relatively recently. And there were a lot of uh, economic interests. So, for example, in the case of uh, Bougainville, which is a section, which is part of Papua New Guinea, you had John Coons, I think, on the show talk about this. Um, there was a massive uh, multi-billion-dollar gold and copper mine, and Australia wanted to. Uh, the Australian business sector wanted to um, gain and maintain control over that, and that triggered a civil war there. Um, which, it, which was again solved with a peace agreement, which was again never fully enacted, which is again has the potential to lead to this sort of division and crisis. Right, and there are people in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea, who want to separate that into a new country. Yeah, they had a independence referendum, which was part of the Bougainville peace agreement, which was I think 97% pro-independence. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, and Australia is looking at, again, at backing the centralized government of Papua New Guinea against Bougainville. It's very similar to the situation of backing Sogavari um, against uh, sort of the devolution desires of Malaita province, which wanted to maintain relations with Taiwan. Right, because even though the vast majority of people in Bougainville wanted independence, that's just a referendum to like see where people are at. It's non-binding. So it doesn't actually 
it didn't actually achieve anything uh, and like constitutionally. Uh, no, it was part, correct. It's part of the process that could lead towards independence. Mm -hmm. But what it does tell you is 97% uh, of people want independence. They don't get independence. You're going to have a problem, right? So, But there's a yeah. solution to that problem. There is. <laughs> I, I believe it is uh, send in the troops. Yeah, well, that's one. The other is follow through on the peace agreement and help them become an independent country in a stable and secure way instead of making them desperate and violent and more willing to you know, take aid from whomever will give them aid to create that dynamic. They're suffering. So they're going to, they don't have an easy choice. They're not gonna stay in this situation. So yeah, it's not, it, it's, it, they're, these business interests uh, is one component of I think the Australian traditional engagement. Another is, I, th I think it's for some in Australia, there's a, an opinion, and you can see it in like the white paper that says that this, the area should be integrated in terms of economy and security into Australia and New Zealand. Basically, a post-colonial type structure where we would be better off running these countries. And the problem with that is, to go back to another recent event, um, when the Pacific Island leaders at the end of September, we're in D.C. meeting with Biden. Um, the U.S. approach is very much still handling the Pacific Islands via Australia and New Zealand proxies. So that relationship between Australia and the countries of the region uh, is undermining the U.S. position in the region. The, the, the countries in the region repeatedly say, we want to deal with the U.S. directly. We don't, want, we don't want you to ask Canberra what to do about dealing with us. How has the U.S. been trying to work with these Pacific Island nations? I know there was a, a meeting a few months ago. So at the end of the Cold War, there was very much of a kind of end of history sort of syndrome in the Pacific. The U.S. closed a lot of embassies, um, withdrew interests, and delegated quite overtly, actually, Melanesian strategic management to Australia. So Melanesia would be what we're talking about, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, um, and to, to Australia, and Polynesian management to New Zealand. Now, there is a whole other section of the Pacific, which is the U.S. freely associated states that in, in the Micronesian region, which is in the north, uh, which ne I think needs to be discussed separately. But in the context of those two, that was sort of delegated away through the Five Eyes construct. Okay, so there's, there's three... Nisias. There's the the Melanesia, which is closer to Australia. Polynesia, which is also near Australia, but it's near New Zealand as well. It's like New Zealand to Hawaii. Okay. And then Micronesia is north of the equator. And China is telling all of them, I need you. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. And these are dumb names. Okay. These are French colonial names. If you think about it, Polynesia well, well, if it's means- French, it's, yeah. you know. <laughs> so Polynesia means a lot of islands. Micronesia means small islands, and Melanesia means black people islands. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just like, this is deeply problematic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but you know the French. Yeah. Well, we did. You know, we, we haven't rewritten those those things. And the people of the Pacific, you know, it's not real to them. You know, if you're in a country like Kiribati or Fiji, you know, you've got a lot of history in a lot of different parts of that area. So, so you don't care what the French call you 
Well, you do now because it's been institutionalized. Or you kind of get grouped. Yeah. I think this is what happens with like in the U.S., Asian American Pacific Islander. What does that mean? It's just like this giant like melange of all these different cultures that don't necessarily right. agree I mean, or get along a- with each Asia- other. Asian people are like two thirds of all yeah. people, right? So uh, and just throw the Pacific Islanders in there because they're sure, just too small not? to be. So I think like is that what you're saying, Cleo? That like all these places have a lot of history with each other, and then we're just being like this group, this group, that group. Yeah, and they have they they have a history with each other. But they're also all very different. Mm-hmm. So you look at Papua New Guinea, it has more territory and more population than New Zealand. Like it's not a small country. I think it's about 9 million people and it's bigger than New Zealand. Uh, then you look at you know, Tuvalu and it has maybe 10, 12,000 people as an independent country. And they're all low-lying atolls. So these are very different. Or you know, the Palau is a U.S. freely associated state. So the U.S is responsible for its defense and security. It plays baseball. It drives on the right side of the street. You know, like, it, it, and whereas if you look at Tonga, they drive on the left. They have a king. You know, it's a whole different system. But I cannot believe they drive on the left. Yeah. It's barbaric. It, it is. They also don't have a single traffic light in the country. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and, and drive very slow. I have questions. Yep. <laughs> How does that work? Without the traffic lights? With traffic yeah. circles, right? You have traffic circles. I think there's one or two. Like, there's not a lot of people. (laughs) This this is the thing to focus on (laughs) here, I believe. I'm 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 concerned. Well, I guess the issue is like, what is the United States security interests in these tiny islands, black people islands, etc. And And there's also, by the way, Indonesia, which theoretically is India's island, right? I mean, if you, I mean, the name, Uh, the names in the region make. No, well, sense. hey, considering how China treats names, yeah. uh, that that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's, so it, those it, islands have been India since ancient times. Huh. But yeah, so what is what is the U.S.'s security interests in these countries, and why is China so interested in causing so, chaos? So and according taking over? to this map, you <laughs> <laughs> can pull one up on screen. I yeah. think um, if you are if you are China and you want to get your massive PLA Navy out of the South China Sea, you need to break the first island chain. So the first island chain is that chain of islands that's, you know, it's Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, all the way down. And there are only a few channels through there where you can move your submarines, uh, where you can safely overfly. Um, That's why Taiwan is so important. If you take Taiwan, you've broken the island chain. And um, uh, as Grant Newsham has also been on your show, has talked about all those other countries become petrified because if the U.S. couldn't defend Taiwan, how are they going to defend anybody else? And so they cut as fast a deal as they can with China, possibly leaving Japan uh, on its own but cut off and maybe Australia or not. But what, that's, that's what that first island chain looks like. But once you've taken Taiwan, the security perimeter doesn't start kind of from those islands in the South China Sea and go out. It starts from Taiwan, and then you and then it goes out for, for China. That means those Pacific Islands. So if the U.S. is positioned on those Pacific Islands, they can they can push back. They can do the reverse the, the island hopping like the Marines did. This is basically the World War II map. So the goal has been. At, at least, I think, since about 2008, Admiral Keating testified 
before the Senate and said that some a Chinese officer had come up to him and said, look, why don't Pacific's a big place. It's a lot of work. Why don't you take Hawaii East and we'll take Hawaii West and we'll, you know, report back if there are any problems. That's such a nice deal. Yeah. So kind. I'm sure he was just joking. Ha ha. Yeah, I don't, I mean, they, the, the, they, the CCP telegraphs its punches and I think they mean it. And in order to be able to do that, you need to um, be able to have uh, influence, if not control, in the Pacific Islands. Yeah. So, uh, like, one of the things that we talked about, you know, before on the show is going back to the Solomon Islands. Uh, China wants to build a naval base on the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands has denied that this is ever going to happen, but I'm almost sure that China wants it to happen and the likelihood of it happening despite China saying they're never going to do it, like that almost makes it more likely. Well, they said they never militarized the South China Sea, right? So we right. know that they stick to their word on right. strategic So, things. So in other words, like if, if China were to have a naval base on the Solomon Islands or on any of the Pacific Islands, you're, what's basically happening now is that China has has hopped through that first island chain. Yes. They're and, basically flanking Taiwan at that point. Right. Yes. So then they can attack Taiwan from not just the west across the Taiwan Strait, but they can attack from the east. Yeah. Uh, and also it makes it much harder. They, they, can, they can implement a blockade. They can move uh, naval ships to these, to these uh, Pacific Island naval bases in peacetime to prepare for war. And then they've got the, the, the ships and the, the aircraft and whatever there ready to go for when they actually launch the invasion. Yep. Uh, so I what, what I think they tend to do mm. is try to keep it below a trigger threshold. So that's where they would use the maritime militia, the fishing fleet, things like that. So they might not call it a naval base. It might be a major fish processing location. Okay. But f processing fish and also guns. Yeah. And, and you know, some sort of and, – and in fact, they, they tried to set up in the Marshall Islands. Um, There's a case recently of um, uh, two people who came from China. They, be, they became Marshallese. Um, and then they tried to set up a special economic zone on Rongelap Atoll, which would have essentially functioned like a country within a country, which would have had different – visa entry requirements, different customs requirements. So they could have set up a system where the Chinese ships were coming in. You didn't know what was there and the warehousing was there and all that sort of stuff. This was on a on an atoll that had been largely depopulated because it was contaminated during the Castle Bravo nuclear tests um, in the 50s. Um, so not, you would think, an ideal location to set up a kind of a tourism and economic development site. But what that meant was the uh, local MPs from the region were very keen to uh, take Chinese money to um, look into some economic development for the region. Now, the reason we know about all this is because they were in indicted uh, and they've been uh, extradited to New York where they're standing trial, that couple. And... The uh, FBI published a lot of their communications, which included how much they were paying off these MPs in the Marshall Islands. And it was like $7,000, $22,000, very small amounts. And they 
and they almost managed to bring down the government of the Marshalls in, in 2018. So It is in- nice when couples do things together. <laughs> <laughs> they were indicted for bribery? For or- money laundering and, and uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I think. And they right. almost toppled a government. They, and they almost toppled a government of a country that recognizes Taiwan and that uh, for which the United States has defense and security responsibility. That's pretty crazy. Is that why they and ended is, up- And is the site of the Kwajalein missile base, U.S. ballistic missile base, sorry. Is that why they ended up in New York? They ended up in New York uh-huh. because they were running the money in part through an NGO affiliated to the United Nations that was registered in New York. Oh, okay. Ah, <laughs> and that And that uh, NGO uh, also had dealings with uh, several other countries and leaders of other countries via the UN. So I would defer to um, people who've written books like Lies and Spies, you know, to say what who was operating those people. Um, but they seem to have had an pretty substantial money flow and pretty targeted uh, outreach. They got nailed on the Marshalls one, but I'm sure that they were attempting similar activities, including in the Pacific. They were uh, creating linkages in Kiribati and in Vanuatu, I think, as well. So clearly the Chinese Communist Party has interests in essentially taking over these 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 island nations, setting up military bases or something in name. Maritime only. militia fish, fish processing, processing centers <laughs> and guns. Yeah. Uh, and they're doing this through anthropic war- warfare, as you're saying, like uh, creating chaos within these countries so they can essentially take over. And, you know, then they can take over Taiwan. But I'm assuming... China must be using these same kind of tactics within Taiwan itself. Yes. So, uh, and we, I mean, there are a lot of examples of that, especially through social media. Um, you know, the, there was, a, I think it was the mayoral election, right? This is also something uh, Kerry Gershanik has written about to try to um, create that that kind of um, division, which can create an opening. And it's, it's worth remembering that they don't need to get you to think something specific. They just need to get you to hate the person next to you. Right? That's that easy. That is really easy. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Whoa, whoa, Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> we on, both went there at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so that that kind of that, – and that's something that's, that and, – and we know. I mean, it's they, – they've said it when – Again, in June 2020, when the Chinese killed 20 Indian soldiers in Galwan, two weeks later, if you remember, what was the first retaliation, major retaliation by the Indian government? Banning a bunch of Chinese apps, right? Yeah, because they didn't want to give the Chinese access to their brain space. They also didn't want to give them access to their intel and facilitate the influence operations and all that sort of stuff. You know, I, I kind of hadn't fully put that together. Like, I knew that the Indian government knew that there was a security threat. Uh, and I knew that it was also retaliation. But it wasn't just a security threat. It was the threat of, like, the CCP mind virus. Psychological yeah. warfare. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, so any country that still allows Chinese apps, like, I don't know, TikTok, like, that's crazy to allow that no, in no, your Matt, country, No, no, Matt, it's right? totally not a Chinese app. Like, it's very separate from, you know— from ByteDance, the parent like the, company that has all the servers, a, Oracle's running their servers now, so everything's fine. Well, so we got we got to talk about this now. Then, like um, you know, uh, when the Biden campaign was running, he banned his staff from having TikTok. Uh, but 
when he became president, he stopped the Trump administration era attempted ban on TikTok. So we have TikTok now. Uh, there's, as we're recording this, we're a few days away from the midterm elections. I know TikTok has talked about some very special election coverage. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the idea of TikTok and entropic warfare in the United States. Yeah, so let's take a step back and look at language. Um, so during the Cold War, uh, you were allowed to have a movie where you had a Soviet fighter come and fight an American fighter, a la Rocky. And when the American fighter beat the Soviet fighter, everybody cheered. You knew who your enemy was. You knew that that state was your enemy. We're not, uh, I, was, I was just at West Point doing some uh, kind of student group conference thing. And we had a little round table on China from, uh, and there were students from, from all around the world actually participating and they're very smart, very interesting. Some of them didn't want to use the word enemy about China, right? They, in part because they didn't want to provoke China. But this, this is just like a, like a class or a thought experiment. It's not like a real thing that gets put into policy papers, right? So um, if you read things like the uh, national security strategy or things like that, you'll, you'll, sometimes you'll see it, sometimes you won't. But there is, I can tell you from other things in, in Washington, that there is a great hesitancy about acknowledging that, 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 that they are an enemy. So it's like we understand, like our government understands that the Communist Party sees itself as being at war with the United States because they've do, written about that in their own do, white does papers. Does our government understand that? Well, but like the CCP has written about it, uh, right? You can't believe everything they say. I mean, That's what we've been trying to tell them. Well, I guess it's like what Alex Jowski was talking about, that whole problem where um, there's a there's a willing disbelief of what like the CCP says, like in white papers or in speeches or whatever, because they've managed to convince. They the, have to say those things. Yeah, but behind they, they closed doors, they don't want that. They managed to convince people by like having like this. People get access behind closed doors to Chinese leaders who will say something else. I'm, right? I'm so frustrated by this because the the things the CCP says that are true, we don't believe. But the things they say that are lies, like one country, two systems, we do believe. Or like behind closed doors, if if some Chinese official tells you you're invited to a special meeting with a Chinese official and then he tells you, don't worry, we're going to stop the zero COVID thing it's like any day now. We're, we're, we want to keep, you know, we economically liberalizing. And, oh, really? Know. Oh, maybe I should triple down on my China investments. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. So, it's like they're sowing chaos in American society. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, and and the, the language is really important because depending on the language, that that will dictate your toolkit of responses. Um, and so, uh, just as another kind of example of that, what China is doing with fentanyl is, if you're going to be technically accurate, is chemical warfare. You know, China could stop the flow of fentanyl if it wanted. It's not, and it's killing sixty to seventy thousand Americans a year. More than car accidents, correct? I don't know, but sixty to 
67,000 people is that's a lot. Yeah, and and for every one, that's a family that's been destroyed. Mm. Right? Uh, com and communities that are ripped apart. That's and that's annually. So that's very effective entropic warfare using unrestricted warfare in this case chemical warfare. If you start to use those words, then your response may be different. Okay, so so if we call the, the the fentanyl thing. And just to be clear, like what's happening is that, you know, Chinese companies are manufacturing fentanyl and using triads, which are also uh, controlled at the top level by the CCP uh, and then pushing those into the borders. Or they're having Chinese companies send precursors to other countries like Mexico where the drugs can be manufactured into their final form and then smuggled across by Mexican cartels. I think those are the two main ways that we're getting fentanyl. Yeah, uh, and, and through Canada. And through Canada. And through oh, right. the Port of Vancouver. Oh, right. We yeah. had Sam Cooper on the show and he talked about that whole, I mean, that's a, yeah, your country's a mess too. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So, so all right, so all this uh, fentanyl though, it's, it's starting from China and uh, we're generally calling it a tragedy. If we were to, to, if the US government said, this is Chinese chemical warfare, then what is the necessary policy change that would follow correcting the language? So it's, so if you say it's not a tragedy, it's an attack, then what are you gonna do to defend yourself from an attack that's killing tens of thousands of, Ameri of Americans every year? Nothing, absolutely nothing. Maybe blame the victims. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, if only if only they had learned to code or something, then they would be you know happy. Um, no, I think it's it. If you if you are willing to use that language, then you know you're there's there's an enormous amount of deliberate confusion around Chinese policies on things like you know buying farmland or uh, being listed on the stock market, things like that. The fentanyl thing is can be looked at in a discreet way away from all of that just just that attack just that warrants retaliation warrants you know kicking out um diplomatic representatives uh repeatedly calling in the ambassador putting in uh trade restrictions blocking entries into ports you know if you accept that this is a chemical attack on the US population then you have a whole other set of uh, policies that you can put in, legitimately put in place. And I think that in the large, uh, in the majority of the U.S. population, this would be very quickly understood. You know, people have seen it in their towns. They've been hurt by it. They've been hit by it. And they know where it's coming from. But they haven't been given uh, the, the option to support a response that would be commensurate with the amount of damage that's been done. But then how could we work with China on climate change? Well, isn't the problem, though, that with the fentanyl thing, it is it is like the U.S. government, they have not made that direct connection all the way to like the Chinese government, right? Like you could be like, oh, well, it's Chinese companies or Chinese triads. Yeah, we just need to we need to work with the Chinese government. Well, that is our response. Xi Jinping promised government. Trump, I think, at some point during the Trump administration, right, that they were going to do more to ban fentanyl coming to the U.S., yeah. 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 They, and, and that is, that's how you can counter what you're talking about. 
if he says he's going to do it, that means he can do it. That means he's not doing it, right? So if you need that justification, you can use his own words to to frame it. Um, but you know, if you you know, draw a mustache on a Xi Jinping poster in the countryside, they'll find you pretty quick. If they're if you have a whole lab producing precursors for fentanyl that you're then shipping out of the country, I think they can find you if they want to. Well, we began this kind of talking about TikTok and the election. Yeah. So So yeah, so the reason the the reason that that it went towards language is because if you start to look at TikTok as an arm of Chinese intelligence, for example, then you can Im- bring into play different mechanisms for uh, bringing it under control. And we know because of the 2017 national intelligence law in China that any Chinese citizen or company has to uh, support Chinese intelligence operations. Right, and and while TikTok is uh, supposedly a totally private company, how does the, the Chinese Communist Party view TikTok? How, how do you think it views TikTok? Well, is it is it just me, or do they? Is the Communist Party think of it like a panda? Um, it, it controls yeah. it no matter where it is. Yeah, I think that's a it, that's a good way of putting it. I think it it's an incredibly useful weapon. You know, it's an information warfare weapon. So, you, so, so you, you would say that TikTok is actually being weaponized by the Chinese Communist Party. I I would agree with the Indian security community who said. If you kill our guys, we're going to kill TikTok because TikTok has the same effect on our society and our national security as a kinetic attack. But it seems like TikTok wants to help because, you know, they had actually set up a 2022 midterm election uh, app or, or center so that you could learn more information about the upcoming election. Isn't that TikTok supporting our democracy, Cleo? Yes, I think it's uh, supporting uh, our democracy on the way towards its demise. I mean, you know, it's, it doesn't want to, um, uh, it, it, it doesn't have, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have the same goals as the American citizen. They're not on the same path at all. Um, so it's, it's back to this Marxism thing, right? If if Stalin had access to TikTok, you know, how helpful how, would we have that on our phones? This goes back to, you know, who is an enemy. If you, if during the Cold War you graduated from MIT and the Soviet Union offered you $5 million to set up a lab and you went, you'd be considered a traitor and when you came back, nobody would hire you. Now you graduate from MIT and the, and the Chinese Communist Party offers you $5 million to set up a lab and all of your classmates are jealous, right? We, in, in, until we understand that, as Gordon Chang has said, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has said we're the enemy and they're acting like we're the enemy and they're trying to get us to fight each other so that it's easier for them to have influence. Uh, so unless we kind of internalize how far it's gone and how much damage they've already done, we can't put in place the sort of corrective measures that we really need to very quickly. Oh, I was going to say with the TikTok, I think it's another issue where 
like it's not necessarily the employees who are setting up this like 2022 election misinformation center are actively like Chinese agents trying to, you know, I think that's too almost obvious and it's easy for people to refute something like that because um, it is hard to see, look at TikTok and see, oh, well, like you, you don't like it's hard to prove that the algorithm is doing something or it's hard to prove that, you know, people are outright seeing like Chinese right. propaganda messages the way that we think of Chinese propaganda. Right. I think it, it has right? just come out that they have been pushing pro China narratives on TikTok. I don't think it was that like widespread or specific. Like if you read that article, it's like. It, you can see what they were doing, but it was also like they couldn't prove that this was being done in like a widespread way. It was like they found some information that showed that ByteDance might have been targeting specific people on TikTok, which, by the way, is also scary in itself. The idea that they are able to see specific people who are using TikTok and then try to like push a certain message toward them. But like there is a bunch of ways that you could rationalize like the why that's like not such a big deal and this is what i see a lot in like people being like oh well this rationalization that like oh we haven't like you're being like a little yellow peril here or something like you're kind of being uh too extreme right because the, the misinformation center is still like a lot of those people working there are americans who are well-intentioned and they right. want to help. Or and they're like, like they, the, they, they know that they're not Chinese agents. Or, or like the idea is that like you're supposed to be um, like, I guess what I'm saying is like there's, I, the problem is that a lot of what we talk about with TikTok is like a potential threat and it hasn't been um, proven yet in mm -hmm. a way that people are um, able to, Except I think certain, certain people who are worried about China will automatically kind of know what you're talking about with TikTok. But I think there is this whole, like the people who are on the more willfully blind side, there's too many ways for them to um, justify it or say like, you can't say that anything. We haven't found like any of this, like Chinese influence operations are much less, you know, clumsier and less sophisticated than Russian influence operations online or something like that on social media. Right. So. It's difficult, I think, to say, oh, well, you know, we all know what TikTok's doing because it is only now slowly coming to light some of the problems that have been happening with like what you mentioned, Chris, or with the idea that ByteDance can still actually uh, still access information um, that is supposed to, they're not supposed to be able to access. But then the information they can access isn't like super... Um, like classified is not the right word, but it's not super private information. But it's so, people's names and phone numbers and birthdays. And so like then you can be like, oh, well, they're not actually accessing anything that, that you couldn't see on their public profile. I don't know about the phone numbers, but like names and birthdays or whatever, right? So you can, there's, I think, too many ways for people to justify that like, oh, well, we don't need to actually ban TikTok if we just do something less extreme, then that'll take care of the problem. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it, they're setting it up a good, a good system. What my, my father, who was a lawyer, always taught me, uh, plausible deniability. Well, I think this kind of goes back to what you were saying, Cleo, about like having 
the right narrative about the Chinese Communist Party. Like when you get into the weeds and compartmentalize everything, like Shelley was saying about TikTok, it's like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. But when you take it in the totality of what they're doing, clearly the Chinese Communist Party is our enemy. And if we just have that high-level understanding, it makes all the other different pieces kind of fall into place. So for you watching, the Chinese Communist Party is your enemy. And you don't know who's I watching. Hmm? <laughs> That's true. Xi Jinping could be. Well, no, the Communist Party is also Xi Jinping's enemy. <laughs> I mean, really, part, like historically speaking, party members don't fare any better than non-party members. Yeah. They anyway. might have some more highs. And, and, yes. and what may also be useful is looking at how technology is used within China. So looking at how um, social credit systems, digital currency, um, all that sort of stuff is utilized within China because... Uh, that's the mindset of the people designing the technologies that are being exported here. It's kind of like, yeah, we're doing this to our own family, but don't worry, we won't do it to you. Yeah, and and if you look at how technology is being used to not not just manipulate but control populations uh, within China, I mean, there was that kind of incredible little clip that Vice did recently about um, – uh, facial recognition system that's being set up to that correlates to uh, criminal databases, which they've actually called Skynet. <laughs> after it's a, the, it's a great name. Yeah, uh, after term, what was in Terminator, and they know it was that it was from. They took it from Terminator on purpose because they see Terminator as like an instruction manual. <laughs> <laughs> Ask them, but you know they were they are proud of that system, right? Um, so. If you accept that that is considered acceptable in that system, and they think that they, being kind of the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, is the best system, better than our system, and it's a system that should be exported, then you can understand why, going back to the Solomons, for example, they're talking about trying to put in 160 Huawei towers and you know, ramp up the ability to have uh, digital control along with physical control in a country like that. Mm. I I kind of just realized something when you're saying about like, okay, so in China, the biggest app is WeChat. And it is designed to be the everything app. So it started out as like messaging, uh, hence the name. But it is now essentially like, you know, people are posting stuff like it's a blog. People are using it for... Uh, purchasing airline tickets and train tickets. They make restaurant reservations. They're paying with it using uh, WeChat Pay. They bank with they it. They bank with it. You can, you, Yeah, you can even get like loans through the system. So essentially your whole life is now on one app, controlled by one app. And it's so convenient, right? And yeah, I guess this idea that like, if if that's not just an organic thing, but that's like having everything on one app makes it so much easier for the Chinese government to monitor and control everybody, right? Like your social credit store can just be based on this one app. It's so simple. Um, should we bring such an app to the United States? <laughs> <laughs> well, Elon Musk wants to turn Twitter into the everything app, right? And yeah. who would he get advice from? <laughs> Maybe all of his close contacts in China. Well, he does have contacts because after he set up his Tesla factory there. That's right. It's... Uh, well, I mean, it just makes sense. If you're going to design an app or some kind of technology, you'll want to talk to people who have made something similar. Yeah, that's right. And there's really only one group that's made something so similar and powerful. 
And and one of the 59 apps that India banned was WeChat. And um, they one of the reasons I was somebody explained to me was because um, the the Indians are the only ones that can really at a large scale compete against uh, Chinese economic investment in in places like Africa or or other parts of Asia because they have very good engineers they have a much better rule of law they have uh, they speak English they're comfortable working in all sorts of different environments. So they were bidding for a lot of contracts in Africa up against Chinese companies and were losing by very small amounts. And uh, one of the questions was whether that was because they had WeChat on their phones and or other Chinese apps on their phones. And so the Chinese were getting access to their bids mm. and could underbid them. And have we seen in the two years since it's been banned, whether there's any change? So that's a good question. Um, COVID has distorted a lot of the economics, so it would be interesting to see later on. Um, and there are some other factors that that go into um, some of the countries in Africa reevaluating their relationship with China for other reasons as well. But it would be very interesting to do that comparison and to do the cost comparison to see whether the Chinese bids are changing, even if the Chi if, even yeah, outside that context. It should be done. Um, but it, it's it's a lot of this has to do with perception, you know, perception and language, and so then what tools you're willing to use. And the the point of the Indian example is, especially after Galwan, after the 20 Indian soldiers were killed, they knew China was an enemy. And so they started putting in place all of these things, but other things also. They started uh, rolling up, uh, you know, ar arresting Chinese massage hotel owners, <laughs> um, uh, rolling up spy networks, starting to change language around things like calling it not the India-China border, but the India-Tibet border, uh, calling the South China Sea the ASEAN Sea. May maybe not officially, but at least in media. So trying to do this thing that we were talking about before, which is regain control of the narrative through language. Um, so the Indians have been very good at that. And it, it it's part of, again, what we've talked about before, which is cleaning out your head and figuring out what, what you think about these issues and not what the pervasive, um, the language that's currently being used has shaped for you um, in terms of how you see the situation. Is a it great? Well, just just a great example of that is how everyone kind of refers to it as reunification with Taiwan. Taiwan was never a part of the People's Republic of China. There's no such thing as reunification. It would be an invasion of an independent democratic country. Yes. And in fact, Taiwan is a country. Yeah. I mean, that. Oh, yeah, right there. Country. <laughs> the C what? word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. yeah. Of course, Tsai Ing-wen has now used the, the C word as well. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, we, it's a country. Yeah. yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a country. <laughs> so I don't, you know, it should, that shouldn't be um, controversial. And if you, if it makes you nervous, it's because the Chinese Communist Party got in your head. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. The TikTok thing, I think, goes back to what you were saying about language earlier, because, like, if it's so hard to recognize that this app is dangerous, um, because like we don't have proof of all this stuff or whatever. It's also like in Antony Blinken's speech on China in the national security strategy, they're willing to say that we're competing with China, but they don't really want to go further than that because I think 
there's this the fear that you were talking about that like somehow that's too provocative. It's like the CCP has weaponized language to so that they are scaring people into thinking that like they will make some kind of um, like if we call Taiwan a country, then China's going to invade. Then it angers Ta- yeah, China, and then China's going to invade Taiwan. Like, but China's as if already we... planning to invade Taiwan. Right, no, no, Shelley's like, making a good point because all of the time in in the news media, you'll hear everything framed from the perspective of someone does something angering China. China. Yeah, we've made a joke about it, but yeah. it's, you see it all the time. And there's this. I think you can see it in in the way that the the U.S. government even talks about it, where they're almost afraid. Like it was very defensive part of Blinken's speech, where he was like, "We are not out to create a new Cold War, et cetera, et cetera." It's like he was trying to um, refute Chinese propaganda, but by doing it that way, he's like accepting the framework of Chinese propaganda. So what he should have said is. We're not trying to create a new Cold War because we're already in a Cold War created by the Chinese Communist Party. If um, if, if the if U.S. State Department Secretary ever State. said that, you would – I would – yeah, that would be – Well, so, hold on, man. I'm curious. <laughs> you were asking Cleo, but I'm curious your response about – Oh, yeah. You're, you're here to tell us stuff. Was there a question? <laughs> oh, no. I was going to say I think that this is related, right? Like how can we yeah. get the – how can we uh, – By the way, I'm enjoying you guys talking about it. You know, I think it's – you're all obviously very knowledgeable and talk to a lot of people about it. And you going through the process of thinking it through out loud is very helpful. So if there are any other kind of uh, language issues that have bothered you or have come up, I think it's worth definitely worth you guys. Well, I think China has the best human rights because <laughs> they've certainly redefined that as economic development. Well, I mean, that's not as uh, – well, since we were talking about language and how we hate it, it's not as impactful <laughs> as uh, – as, uh, as like the everything getting framed as angering China because no one legitimately talks about like how great Chinese human rights are, uh, but everyone is like, oh, we can't anger China because what if they invade Taiwan because we angered them? Just like what if Putin invades Ukraine because we angered him? Just, just as an aside, uh-huh. if I can make a pitch for getting rid of the word deplane. You're not taking a plane out of yourself when you get off of an airplane. You're not deplaning. You're disembarking. Sorry, that was just the one thing that drives me yes. completely nuts. A very impactful statement. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, th- so this this goes this goes back to whether you take China at its word. So if you take Xi Jinping at his word when he said that during the speech about reunification with Taiwan peacefully if possible by force if necessary. Nothing you say is going to to mitigate that. That they're on that path. So the question is: Do you are we are you going to fight them now? Are you going to fight them later? You're not going to fight them at all, right? That's that. that those are the options. So uh, this and the sooner you kind of come to terms with that, you know, the the better off everybody will be. If you're not going to fight them at all. If you're going to wait for for the attack to happen and then dither long enough to say now it's too late for us to do anything, or you know twenty thousand, thirty thousand Americans will die, then let Japan know that. You know, give Taiwan the weapons it needs. You know, do what, give the Philippines whatever it needs to defend itself. You know, but this sort of uh, kind of dithering um, and pretending that somehow you can derail China from the track that it's on through giving in 
I mean, it, it is completely nonsensical. So you're saying appeasing an authoritarian regime might not work? I mean, can you give me an example where it has? Uh, those who don't learn from the mistakes of history don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> so I guess the, the ultimate question is, uh, what went wrong? Why, did the U why was the U.S. so clear about the threat of the Soviet Union? But with China, it's, it's just a complete mess. I mean, Shelley brought up the term yellow peril. This is a red peril. But I think that reds. I think that's part of it. I think that you know uh, concerns over racism. I mean, this 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 again goes back to this thing of you get a real problem and then you're given the wrong solution. So there there definitely was a problem of discrimination against Asian Americans among many other Americans, and so then the solution that's offered is don't say anything bad about the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that is a solution that they have very visibly offered in propaganda, both in Chinese state-run media and in American media when they've been writing op-eds. Remember, like, the Chinese ambassador wrote an op-ed oh, that yeah. was published. I forget where it was. Which is another case of, was, like, if we viewed it as an enemy nation, we would not be having their heads of state or whatever writing opinion pieces in our newspaper. We wouldn't have let Stalin, like, publish Justify, an op-ed in the New York Times. Well, yeah, but we wouldn't so, let Hitler give his justification of the Holocaust. I mean, What's maybe we would. I don't know. Actually, but, like, yeah. I think the Tsui Tiankai's op-ed was about racism and... Um, how COVID was being, you know, weaponized to, to be racist against Asian Americans. And then, like, a little bit down, a few paragraphs down, he made this little switcheroo where, like, it became about criticizing China also was part of that same racism, right? So it is a very explicit message of theirs. Yeah, and it and it and that article then gets distributed through social media networks with which they, under which they have some control uh, to the right sort of, soft targets who they've identified through your metadata and other methods to be able to amplify that message. Yeah. And then, you know, and then actually they benefit from attacks on Asian Americans, just like they attacked, they benefited from the attacks on the Chinese population in Solomon Islands, because it creates that fear and that division and that uh, lack of desire among people who are worried about exacerbating that situation to criticize the, the party, even though the biggest victims of the Chinese Communist Party are, of course, the Chinese people. Yeah, I, I feel like it must be more than just like that racism mm -hmm. claim. Uh, it's I, more, yeah. Yeah, that's one element. But. Yeah, because I don't feel like people are like, oh, we can't criticize the Chinese Communist Party because of racism. Well, there's lawfare. I mean, there's the twenty-four. There's the twenty-four warfares that you find in in unrestricted warfare, and there are the you know, the three main ones, which are uh, psychological warfare, media warfare, which this would be a subset of this that you're talking about, and lawfare. So the way that WeChat, because there were executive orders under the Trump administration to close down TikTok and WeChat, and and what happened specifically with WeChat was uh, a grassroots WeChat users organization popped up out of nowhere to say that this was an infringement on their First Amendment rights. Uh, and they were supported by the ACLU, who said that it would restrict their ability to communicate with whatever, whatever. And they dragged on the court case. And then the Biden administration came in, uh, withdrew their objection to the case. I don't know what the legal terms are. Um, and actually paid the court fees almost a million dollars of the, that WeChat users group 
How nice. Yeah. So that very effective lawfare. So there's there's an, an uh, that's what unrestricted warfare is. You use what's going to work. You use editorials. You use lawfare. You use uh, you pay off or the right guys on Wall Street are men and women are making money off of. I mean, take a look at you know one of one of the things that. Um, that drives me a little bit crazy and which I'm glad you guys are looking at a little bit is um, when you when you're in, buy stuff online, there is no uh, legal requirement from online retailers to list country of origin of the product. So if you walk into Walmart, you can flip it over and see where it's made. If you buy it on Amazon or Walmart or online, you can't see where it's made. And so people who would prefer not to buy something that may have been made by slave labor online, they, you, you don't know. And in Amazon, if you go down to the comments, you'll often see, is this made in China? Is this made? People want to know. Uh, but there was an active, very well-funded lobbying effort to derail legislation that would have made that compulsory, listing country of origin for online retailers. There was legislation. Amazon was against it. Walmart was against it, that sort of thing. So um, that, that tool, even that tool of being able to vote with your pocketbook has been taken away through lobbying. That's a whole other method of using proxies to achieve your unrestricted warfare aims that's been very effectively deployed. You know, that reminds me, we, we, we made a pilot about that for our Unmade in China show. We, oh, yeah, yeah we, we actually did talk about that specific, that specific issue, that specific law that got like kind of died quietly in Congress. Yeah. yeah. And Amazon's justification is that like they have so many third party sellers, they can't be held liable for whether the third party sellers are going to be honest or not. You know. Right. But I mean, that's the same issue with printing it on the boxes, too. Right. Well. I mean, but there is a law that it actually. I know U.S. Customs it, will can can bring legal action against you for not doing that. Yeah, I know, but but I mean, still, there are people who try to lie and they put something else on the box. <laughs> We're like, like, like I'm thinking about that that honey that was uh, from Dubai. You know, where they have so many beehives. Oh yeah, where they basically honey was banned from China because of some. Like they were they, they were using chemicals to uh, that like aren't illegal in the U.S. And right, then, so like, they just send it through a third country and then label it as yeah. Or I bought a I had to buy like my phone was running out of batteries. I had to buy one of those power banks, uh-huh. and on I had no choice because there was only one kind of power bank at the CVS. But on the outside, it said designed in America, and no nothing else. There was no other like made in information on the outside of the box because they had actually put it on the product where it said made in China on the actual power bank. But by that point, you've already bought it and taken it out of the packaging. So, you know, you can't really do anything about that. Well, anything that says designed in America, like that's a red flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Resembled. but they were able to get around that customs law because the customs law is that you have to have it either on the box or the physical product. So right. if they put it on the product, it was sneaky. Yes. And, and really this just goes back to, again, what you're saying about, you know, needing to have the right use of language. And that's why I'm always trying to say, we need to call them the dirty reds, Actually, but that is very easily we- weaponized, which is why I refuse to say that. Because then you can get into the whole McCarthy thing. Wait, what right? are you refusing to say? Uh, yeah, the term that I'm not going to say, nice try. <laughs> that was a nice try. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm talking about. I don't actually. Okay. But go on, go on and make your point. Well, my point was that like 
that we're talking about how yellow peril and the red peril red peril can be well red peril can be weaponized in the same way that yellow peril and racism can be weaponized by the ccp red peril can be weaponized just as easily because then you go back to like oh are you gonna do like this you're going to persecute people for their political beliefs are you gonna do a mccarthy like it is very easy Mm -hmm. to turn that around and be like see these people who are they're against china they're uh, you know they're accusing us of well, being the words. Well, that so I'm even not if you say, say, shoot. So even if you say China's the enemy or the Chinese Communist Party is the enemy, wouldn't that just get you right back there as well? But I think saying the Chinese Communist Party is the enemy is different than saying the DR word, right? The Democratic Republic. You know what I'm saying. I don't. I'm not going to say it, and you're not going to get me to say it. <laughs> But there, but there are also a lot of Americans, especially at universities, who are fine with communism. That's true too. Yeah. So you know, which is why picking very clear cases like fentanyl, you know, where where there's none of this other stuff is involved. This is clearly um, a policy of the Chinese government. This doesn't have to do with ethnic Chinese people in any way. In fact, the drugs are coming into the country mostly through the Mexican cartels or. Those dirty Canadians, as you as you mentioned, um, dirty Canadians is okay. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. Canucks, actually, what's it called? Yeah, um, uh, the snowbacks. As we come in through the border like that, uh, I haven't snowbacks. even heard that slur. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, if you pick your to- your topics really, you know, clearly, and then that helps you to think about it. And then you can, and then that lets you branch out into other things. Okay, well, if they're doing fentanyl, what else are they doing, for example? Um, so just instead of, you know, unless you've read Marxist-Leninism and, you, you know, you know what they're actually doing at a macro level, if you have a case study that has really done unbelievable amount of damage to this country deliberately, that could be stopped immediately, you know, then, then you, you can get confused. So if you start with those very specific examples, like TikTok, like we just, we talked about TikTok a lot, you know, and it's worth talking about. But if you're trying to talk to friends or relatives or whatever who may be uncomfortable with a lot of these other things that we're talking about, building out from fentanyl may be a a gateway drug to understanding uh, what what is actually going on. So you mean when I've been shouting at parties about the dirty reds, I might have actually been pushing people away? <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this is because they, they've done this in so many different sectors, like, for example, maps and globes, right, where they've uh, taken, uh, which which is a buy, which is a, so we know those three warfares. We know uh, psychological uh, media and lawfare. I think the, personally, I think the, Invisible fourth one is education, going into education systems and distorting them. And that doesn't necessarily just mean, and this is this TikTok thing, it doesn't necessarily mean pushing a Chinese narrative. It could mean getting you to hate America, you know, getting you to think that the American system is a terrible system. Because remember, comprehensive national power, um, if you can do it two ways, your country gets better or the other country gets worse. So, so you know, because America does have real flaws, if you emphasize those flaws, then you can offer a solution, like burn down all of the creameries. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So America has flaws, so destroy America. 
Yeah, the uh, communists do take advantage of people's ignorance of history to sell very simplistic narratives. Yeah, which are particularly appealing to, you know, younger people, you know, and but also to desperate people, you know, to people who are who are really suffering and who, and people suffer more uh, when there's a lot of chaos or entropy in society. Yeah. Or fentanyl. Yeah. Yeah. They do. So it's not that warfare in the tropics, you know, doesn't necessarily just stay in the tropics. Um, and uh, the, the goal is, keeping with the heat theme, to melt down those societies. And it goes back, like you said, to the original foundation of the, the principles behind the founding of the Chinese Communist Party and this sort of destroy the systems and then recreate the new ones. And, and, I, and I would add on to that a layer of wanting to be uh, kind of uh, a 19th century style colonial power, right? So you want to, uh, what, what you do when you melt it down isn't necessarily to create an Eastern Bloc, an Eastern Europe type situation, but to create more of a you know, British colonial structure where you can have a local administration, but you're sucking out the resources and you're controlling foreign policy and defense and things like that. Well, I think since you so expertly brought us back to the beginning of the podcast, I think this might be a good place to wrap up. But I, I do think really uh, one of the valuable things that came out of this conversation is specific tactics that people can use. Because this is something people are always asking me, oh, like, what can I do? Well, changing how you talk about the Communist Party, how you understand it, using things like fentanyl to talk to your friends and family about it in a way to get them to understand that. Like calling it chemical warfare. Calling chemical warfare. Understanding that China is attacking, the Communist Party is attacking America with these things. Yeah, so people come to the conclusion that the Chinese Communist Party is your enemy. Are there other things that... Would like so my friend Paul mm -hmm. tells me repeatedly that I always forget to say one of the things that would make a huge um, would be very impactful mm -hmm. um, is to talk about um, how much money the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party have hmm. and how corrupt they are and how they you know the where did Xi Jinping's daughter go to school Harvard so we should all know that. You know, and the Chinese people should know that as many as possible, and they should they should just know that they're not dealing with, um, you know, they're authoritarian and they're Marxist Leninist or this or that or whatever. They're also really corrupt. Yeah, they're also great at making money. I think China has considerably more uh, millionaire politicians, like per capita, than the United States. Yeah, and we have we have a lot here yeah. as well, but. Yeah, and and it functions like a mob family. I mean, that the taking out Hu Jintao that was that was a mob move, right? Um, you so, gotta make him an offer; he can't refuse. That's right. Um, and yeah, yeah, we don't know what fishies he's, what fishing fleet he's sleeping with right now. But um, that issue of making it very clear that these are also very corrupt people. Um, might be helpful. And there's when the Chinese Communist Party goes into a country, there's the commercial front. So they might talk about, for example, the fishing uh, element tied into the strategic component, which is that fishing fleet might have 
containerized missiles hidden in them or whatever. But then there's always a corruption element. And that corruption element is, is the string that democracies can pull on most effectively. So in the case of Sogavari, Prime Minister Sogavari, for example, he has been bought off. That grouping has had a lot of Chinese money flow through it, and some of that has been used to buy Australian real estate, for example. Start going after the corrupt money. Start making it, start making leaders in, you know, in Solomon's think, no, that if they take Chinese money, they may never get a visa to Australia or New Zealand again. They may end up with their assets seized. You know, they may, and, and then you're fighting not by giving them guns, you're fighting by giving them transparency, accountability, rule of law, all of the things that we say we believe in. So, well, we believe in guns too. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Amen. So, be very clear that there is an illegal, corrupt component to the leadership and to the system, and go after that all across the board from the top down to the beaches of Guadalcanal. This is kind of what the Minsky sanctions kind of do, right? Like yep. the idea is that you single out specific officials who have done terrible, corrupt things, um, human rights violating things, but you also expose the fact that like they have, you know, yachts in Europe or property in the U.S. or whatever, and you cut them off from that. Yeah. yeah. So, so in the case of the Solomons, you know, uh, Sogavari might be making whatever he's making from the Chinese, and he'll give a cut of that to those MPs. And uh, we saw with we saw in the in the marshals the the amounts Solomon's is a bit more, but in the marshals the amounts were like seven thousand dollars, twenty two thousand dollars. If they know that they can take the seven thousand dollars, but they may never be able to travel to the states without the risk of getting arrested, that seven thousand dollars doesn't look so good anymore. Right, or if they knew how much bribes in other places were, they'd be like, I need a lot more than $7,000 to take this risk. <laughs> well, there, there is that. But then maybe you can bankrupt the Chinese Communist Party uh, on the way down. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my threshold for selling out to the Communist Party is a lot higher than $7,000. Like, it's at least eight. Eight, yeah, okay. Yeah. That, it's Canadian dollars? No, American dollars. <laughs> All right, damn, damn. can't afford you then. Well, thank you so much for joining us in person today, Cleo. Like, this... This had some real actionable items. Yeah, but pleasure. And thank you for relocating your studio to the wilds of northern Quebec so that it's so easy to come and visit you. <laughs> yes. You disclosed our undisclosed location. <laughs> oh, no. Now the dirty reds can find us. Mm. You're still mm. never going to get me to say it. Yeah. Say what? You know what. And thank you for joining us. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley John. And I'm Matt Ganesta. Oh, me? Okay, sorry. I'm Cleo Pascal. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>